Thank you, Connie. Mark chapter 14 this morning, if you've got your Bibles, Mark chapter 14. If you don't have your Bibles, you really do, you just don't know it. There's one in the pew in front of you that you're welcome to. There's a chair in front of you you're welcome to pick up and even take with you if you need one. Mark chapter 14, we're going to be in verse number 53. Let me just mention a couple of things regarding the announcements. Don mentioned the CCW class, the, 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 uh, the uh, Centurion Security, the, the group that came in and did some consulting with our safety and security team is the one that will be providing this class. If there's any interest in it whatsoever, uh, the cost, I don't know if Don mentioned the cost, it's $75 and it's a one-day Saturday class. Uh, the date that they wanted to do it is, is, is already booked for us, so we can't do it. But right now we're just trying to determine interest. So if that's something that interests you, uh, we need to get you to sign up so that we can figure out uh, how we can get that scheduled. If we have enough interest, they would actually do it here. Uh, if they don't have enough interest from us, then they would combine us with another class, probably at Norton, which is uh, their home base. So uh, make sure you sign up about that. And the other thing I wanted to mention uh, that I told Don I would handle is the, uh, the book of the month. Uh, you've been reading a lot of stuff in our bulletin about discipleship lately. We've been stressing that, and uh, the book of the month is a book that's along those lines. It's one that I actually had to read in Bible college, which is a long time ago. Uh, but I picked it up recently and started reading it again, and it hasn't lost a bit of its brilliance. It's called The Master Plan of Evangelism, and uh, we don't have a copy of it out there yet, but there's a picture there. You can look at it online if you want. It's available through Amazon, and we'll sell it at a discounted rate as well. And, of course, the first two copies are free. So if you're interested in that, a very highly recommended classic book. It's sold hundreds of thousands of copies, and uh, for good reason. So the master plan of evangelism, I encourage you to get that and read it. Mark chapter 14, let's begin reading in verse number 53. We're going to read down through verse 65. Then we're going to skip the little section about Peter denying Jesus and jump down and read some of chapter 15. We'll come back to Peter's issue uh, later. Verse 53, they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the councils sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him, saying to you, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard of the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, Prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Jump down to uh, chapter 15. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing. 
so that Pilate marveled. Now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. And there was one named Barabbas, who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. Pilate answered and said to them again, What then do you want me to do with him whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him, and bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the Word of God. And oh, Lord, what a dark part of history we're entering into now as we study these last few details in the Passion Week of our Savior. I pray as we think about the trials today and what took place there that you'd speak to our hearts. Lord, make this real to us. Help, help there not to be a single person here who does not understand intimately and acutely that this was done for them. I pray that you would speak to all of our hearts today and recognize that all that Jesus did here, all that he went through, he went through for us. So help me, fill me with your spirit. Help me to preach clearly and accurately and practically. Help me to say nothing I ought not and everything I should. And just use these few moments, we pray. And if there's even one here today who's never responded to the offer of salvation that Jesus is offering them even now, I pray, Lord, you'd speak to them loudly and clearly through this this few minutes. May they be saved this day. And for any of us believers who perhaps need a refresher on just what Jesus did for us, maybe we've drifted, maybe we've forgotten, maybe we're close to leaving our first love, help us to see it again and be revived in our soul, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we do come now to the trials of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was subjected in this passage to a sham trial. Actually, two of them, maybe more than two, before the Jewish ruling council. That's the folks that are known as the Sanhedrin. And he was also subjected to a trial before the Roman authorities, Pilate the governor specifically. So he was tried by both Jewish and Gentile authorities. And interestingly, both of those trials took place in pretty much three parts. Uh, if we, we have to kind of look at the other Gospels to see all of that. Mark tells some of it, but if we bring the other Gospels to bear, we see more. If we look at John's Gospel, uh, we bring it alongside Mark, we see that there were three parts to the Jewish trial. The first part was opened by Annas. We read that in John chapter 18, and you can turn there on your own sometime. But Annas was the former high priest. He was the father-in-law to Caiaphas, who was the current high priest. And the initial part of the trial took part there. 
And you can read that in John 18, 13 through 24. From there, the proceedings moved to the full council. And this is what we read about here in Mark, where various false witnesses were called upon in an attempt to find fault with the Savior. And then finally, there was a third part, which was an early morning session. We read that in Mark chapter 15 and verse number 1. That was primarily called to make the whole thing look legal, because it wasn't allowed to be done the way they were doing it. And so, three parts. There were three parts to the Roman trial as well, and we have to bring Luke and John in alongside of Mark to see that. Mark and John tell us that it all began with Jesus being brought before Pilate. We read about that here. He was the governor, the Roman governor. Pilate then sent Jesus to Herod. As soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. Luke chapter 23 tells us. And Luke goes on to describe that second portion of this trial, which took place before Herod in Luke chapter 23. And finally, Herod sent him back to Pilate for the final act in the Roman trial, where Pilate realized Jesus had done no wrong, where it was customary for him to release some prisoner during the feast time, and where the crowd was stirred up to request the murderous Barabbas in place of the Savior. And... uh, Pilate, just like those today, ever a politician wanting to appease the crowds, decided to go along with the crowd and condemned Jesus to the cross. Verse 15. Apparently, a Pilate had a dramatic streak in him. We don't see it in Mark, but of course we know from Matthew chapter 27 that he uh, he had this flair for the dramatic, and he got a bowl of water, and he washed his hands before the crowd and said, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. Of course, you can't wash away your sin like that, but he thought he would. So three parts to each. The trials of Jesus Christ were plainly the greatest mockery of justice that has ever occurred on the face of this earth. The Jewish trial. The Jewish trial was carried out by the Sanhedrin. It was the Supreme Court of the Jews. It consisted of 71 members made up of the Sadducees, who were the priestly class, the scribes and the Pharisees, who were experts in the law, and elders who were just respected men. Uh, amongst the Jewish people. The high priest presided over the court. And they had rules. They had rules, just like our Senate has today, just like uh, uh, most institutions have today. They operated under a set of rules. And in this instance, they broke just about every rule that they have. One person wrote several different examples of how they violated their own code. The official meeting place of the Sanhedrin was the Hall of Hewn Stone, which was within the temple precincts. And the decisions of the Sanhedrin were not valid unless reached at a meeting held in that place. But then there's verse number 54. That's not where they were meeting. The court was not allowed to meet at night, but it was night here. Nor could it meet at any of the great feasts. But this was the Passover feast. The verdict was reached even before the trial began. If you look at verse number 55, they were looking for witnesses to try to prove uh, his guilt uh, even before they had uh, heard the witnesses. The judges suborned false witnesses in verse number 55 and verse number 56. And, of course, after Jesus left the trial with the Jews, the Romans tried him, and, and then he was crucified. Certainly in the accounts of Jesus' trial before Pilate, we see just as much evidence of injustice. Pilate, knowing him to be innocent, condemned him anyway. Pilate, knowing him to be innocent, sentenced him to be scourged anyway. Pilate, knowing him to be innocent, 
believed he could absolve himself of his sinful participation in that travesty with a bowl of water, he sentenced an innocent man to scourging and to death. So both trials, Jewish and Roman, shams of the highest degree, travesties of justice. And we have to ask ourselves a question, don't we? Why? Why? What, what was the crime? What did Jesus do to deserve death? The old gospel song said it like this. Why did they nail him to Calvary's tree? Why? Tell me, why was he there? Jesus, the helper, the healer, the friend. Why? Tell me, why was he there? Well, let's, let's look at the trials just for a bit. Let's see what crime they accused him of and what condemnation they pronounced upon him. Let's see if we can get any answers to that. First of all, the crime. What was his crime? Of course, there was none. There was no crime. Jesus had not committed a single crime. I read an old legend that stated that the Sanhedrin had no trouble getting the kind of evidence they did not want. People who would come forward and say, I was a leper and he cleansed me. I was blind and he gave me back my sight. I was deaf and he made me hear. I was dead and he raised me to life. Plenty of those kind of witnesses, according to this legend, came forward. But they struggled mightily to find a single example of misconduct or of crime or of sin because such was simply non-existent. Jesus was sinless, without sin, of any kind. Scripture is absolutely clear on that point. Isaiah prophesied they made his grave with the wicked but with the rich at his death because he had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Paul clarified that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Peter wrote, knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. And the writer to the Hebrews makes it as plain as it could possibly be made. When he said, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus was sinless. Even his enemies couldn't point out a single transgression in his life. He one time famously challenged them to do just that. He said to them one time when they were trying to trip him up, he said, which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? John chapter 8. Do you have the nerve to make that kind of a request of your enemies? Would you have the nerve to make that kind of a challenge to those who so desperately wanted to point out sin in your life? I certainly would not. I have a deep well of sin from which they would be able to draw. But Jesus, on the other hand, had no sin. So what was his crime? What was his crime? Well, his crime was his identity. Look at verse number 61. He kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. What did Caiaphas mean when he's asked, asked if he was the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? He was asking if he was God. He was asking if Jesus was claiming to be God. The blessed was a way of referring to God without using the name of God. The Jews very rightly feared misusing the name of God. 
After all, one of the commandments does say, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And so they had these ways of getting around actually using the name of God to avoid any possibility of misusing it. The blessed was simply another way of referring to God. And so Caiaphas was asking very point blank if Jesus believed he was God. And Jesus said, Yes, I am. Here's the amazing fact, folks. Jesus is God. He was, and he is God. We can demonstrate that so easily from Scripture. The Father said it was so at his baptism, Matthew chapter 3. Suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit also testified at that same time by coming down and lighting on his shoulder and uh, uh, lighting upon him, testifying that he was God. John the Baptist pointed him out, John chapter 1. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus pointed out that his works, all of his works, were evidence of this fact. He said, If I do not do the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. And he claimed it over and over We only need to compare his words here with God's words to Moses from the burning bush. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Jesus, when he said I am, was not just speaking in the affirmative. Jesus, when he used that phrase I am, was clearly claiming to be God. And that fact was not lost on the high priest who was hearing him. All you need to do is look at verse 63, and you can see that Caiaphas knew exactly what Jesus was saying. Jesus claimed to be God when he said, I and my Father are one, in John chapter 10 and verse 30. He claimed to be God when he said, He who sees me sees him who sent me, in John chapter 12 and verse 45. Philip asked him one time, and Jesus seemed almost frustrated at his lack of understanding because Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Jesus Christ is God. It is plainly stated in Scripture. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And his resurrection from the dead proved it beyond any reasonable doubt. Paul said to the Romans in chapter 1 and verse number 4 that he was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So Jesus was God. This was the crime that condemned him. This was the crime that drove both Jews and Gentiles to put him on trial and condemn him to death. The crime was his identity. Let's think a minute about the condemnation. It makes for difficult reading. It makes for difficult preaching. But we need to think about it a little bit. Consider what they condemned Jesus to. They condemned him, of course, first of all, the Son of God, to be guilty of death. We see that in verse number 64. But there was other things that took place before that. They spit on him. Verse number 65. Spitting was a gesture that indicated complete reproach, just as it is in our culture today. They blindfolded him, asked him to prophesy as to who was hitting him. Verse number 65. That might not seem like that much, but here's what they were doing. You see, they believed the prophecies 
about the Messiah. They believed the prophecies of Isaiah especially. And Isaiah had prophesied the Messiah would be able to render judgment without the aid of sight. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Isaiah 11. When they blindfolded Jesus and they asked him to prophesy, they were plainly mocking his claim to be the Messiah. They blindfolded him. They beat him. Verse number 65. Beat him. The word beat there is the Greek word kalafidzo, which simply means to strike with the fist. It is a word that is derived from knuckles. They also slapped him, verse number 65. So blows rained down upon the face and the head of the sinless Savior from both open and closed fists and hands. And it wasn't just the Jewish trial where this level of abuse took place. We can read the same thing in the Gentile trial and the Roman trial. They had just as much shameful and disgraceful activity. Mark relates the Roman portion of that abuse in chapter 15 and verses 16 through 20. We read in verse 16 that the entire Roman garrison came out to participate in the, in the activities. They arrayed him in a purple robe to mock his claim to be king. They placed a crown of thorns on his head, further mocking, but also physically torturing our Savior. Every year at Christmas time, we, or at Easter time, we put up a purple thing here on the cross and we have a crown of thorns that we hang at the top. And every one of us has to handle that so carefully. It's the most horrendous thing that you'll ever see, the thorns that are on that. You can hardly handle it without hurting yourself. This was pressed into his head. They also didn't stop at mocking and, and verbal abuse. They hit him on his blood-soaked head. Drove the thorns ever deeper, deeper with a reed. I don't know exactly what that means. The NIV translates that as a staff, and we read in Matthew chapter 27 that they had given him a reed to hold in his hand like a royal scepter. And so whatever that stick was, they took it and beat him over the head. And then finally, the mockery and abuse, having been played out in both the Jewish and Roman arenas, they led our Lord away to crucify him. Now, I can think of two truly amazing thoughts that come to my mind as I think about this. The first is this. This one. This one who was sinless, guiltless, innocent of any crime or wrongdoing, was tried and condemned to death. When in reality, it's you and me. It's all of us who are the ones who truly were guilty of death. Why did he go through all this? He did it for you. He did it for me. He was our substitute, taking upon himself our sin so that we would never be condemned for it, paying the price that we owed so that we would never have to pay it, suffering death so that we would not. 2 Corinthians 5.21 ought to be circled in all of our Bibles. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. He was all-powerful and sovereign God. He could have He could have ended the travesty of those trials at any minute. 
but he allowed it to go on. He allowed them to proceed because he was voluntarily taking your place and mine. He had no crime for which to die. (laughs) But you did. And so did I. The punches and the slaps that fell across his face were yours. The thorns that pressed into the brow of the sinless Savior were mine. We deserved it, not him. But he bore it so we would not have to. Isaiah said it so well. He said, surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast, beyond all measure, that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. And there's a second amazing thought that comes to my mind as I consider these trials. And that is this. Here, this one upon whom these unjust trials were perpetrated. This one who was judged by such unjust judges will one day judge them. They were judging their own judge. And someday the Son of God will pronounce judgment on the guilty. That's what he was saying to the high priest in verse number 62. He was saying, you judge me now, but one day you will see me coming again to judge you. And the Bible is clear that every man... Every woman, every boy, every girl will one day stand before Jesus, the judge. Are you ready for that encounter? Are you ready for that? Think it through. If the trials Jesus endured, if in those trials they were right in determining he's not God, then you and I are right in just kind of ignoring his claims. But what if they were wrong? What if Jesus is God? Of course he is. What if he is the son of the blessed? If Jesus is the son of the blessed, then he's coming again. Are you ready to meet him? If Jesus is the son of the blessed, then he's coming to judge. Are you ready to face him? He kept silent and answered nothing. And again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power. Coming with the clouds of heaven. Well, let us pray. Father, we're so thankful for the word of God and even these hard parts that make us sad to read. We're so thankful in many ways. We're thankful Lord Jesus loved us enough to go through this. We know that he could have called 10,000 angels. We know that he could have destroyed the world. We know that he could have done anything uh, that he chose to do. He could have gotten out of this in any way, but he stood there silent, alone, and voluntarily because he loved us. Because he had come to seek and to save us. And this was the only way. 